Awesome. Well, hey, hopefully you made some lifelong friends in that 15 seconds. Uh, I just want to say good morning. My name is Chris Zarbaugh. I'm the lead pastor here at Kensington Clinton Township. And uh, I just want to respond to the entire day thus far. We opened up singing, you know, and the reason why we opened up singing, uh, thank you, Lord, and great are you, Lord, is because today is, as Tracy said, about gratitude. And uh, you've arrived for part number two of a three-part series called Questions Jesus Asked. And if you take all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the recordings of Jesus and his three-and-a-half-year ministry here on earth, all four of those, there's actually over 300 questions, but some of them overlap telling the same story. So when you harmonize the Gospels, Jesus asked over 130 distinct questions while he was in, you know, in his ministry here on earth. And you'll notice if you, you know, read up on it is that most of, almost all of his questions uh, were not answered. They were rhetorical. And the reason why they were rhetorical is because the answer was obvious in the context in which they were asked. And not only was it rhetorical in, in to, make, to prove a point in this context, but it's the same way for us. I believe that the haunting, sometimes haunting questions that Jesus asked, uh, he asked for us as well. Because once we discover the answer to these questions, they're nothing less than life-changing. And so last week we looked at why do you judge? And we talked about that. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go online and watch that. And today we're talking about gratitude. And we're talking about uh, really the question Jesus asked was to 10 lepers. And he asked the question, where are the other nine? And so as we begin and jump into it, I'd love to pray as we begin. Would you join me in praying as we get started? Well, Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray your blessing on our time together. Lord, help us to hear from you and from your word and help us, Father, to uh, be reflective, be mindful, and to be challenged. Help us to respond to what you would have for us today. Lord, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for the air that we breathe, for the freedom to meet here this morning, or whether we're listening online. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, Even now, we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, We're going to take just a moment and receive our offering at this time. And as our ushers are coming down, I just want to say this. If you're visiting here today, uh, don't worry about giving in this moment. You can keep your wallet in your pocket. Uh, Listen, this moment is not really designed for you even. It's designed for people who consider Kensington their church home. And uh, even uh, even as they give, uh, every single Sunday, we are careful to say thank you for giving. We know it's difficult to give anywhere financially, uh, but we believe what the Bible says, that we're supposed to give back to what God has blessed us with. Uh, so we are always careful to say thank you for trusting our leadership, trusting us as a church, and most importantly, trusting and believing what God says about giving generously. So thank you for that. So as the offering is passing, I just want to share with you real quick a story about an, about an idea that thankfulness is about perspective. And it's very easy to lose uh, gratitude. You know, it's easy not to be thankful. If not careful, we can overlook all the blessings in our lives. So let me take a survey. How many of you admit that at times it's, it's easy to forget to be thankful? Raise your hand. All right. Now, if you did not raise your hand, you're lying and going to double hell <laughs> in church. Because I know that everybody struggles with constantly being thankful. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God blesses us with every 
good thing. So here's my story. So about a month and a half ago, I went to South Sudan. We have a global partner there, uh, Ruben, uh, who who is just here uh, with us. But anyway, he uh, runs a ministry trying to bring the gospel to the people of South Sudan. They live in very primitive villages. In fact, it's even, it's hard to believe, but it's even more primitive in a lot of ways than the Kenyan Pokot region that we uh, drill wells for. And so when I landed there, when I, by the way, I flew in this little puddle jumper. We landed in a field and there was no runway. We had to actually uh, fly around a couple of times because there were too many goats on the field. And they had to, they had to clear the field and, and, and actually land the plane in this field. So anyway, we got in a car and we traveled for hours on this winding road and this mud filled, you know, we even got stuck in the mud. After hours, we get to this primitive village. I took a picture of the skyline as we were approaching it and... Um, this, this village went on, it was bigger than a football field. It was absolutely huge. You would never expect it to be here. It was out in the middle of the bush, in the middle of nowhere. And those huts were amazing, by the way. In fact, uh, here's a picture uh, inside the village. Uh, this, uh, this stick structure to my left, or to your left, is, um, it's actually, it was like a kitchen for a while. Now, like the goats eat the leaves that are in there. Uh, and then the, the structure there with the stilts, they actually store all of their grain and all of their corn. So that the animals can't get it. And, and it's just unbelievable. I met a family there. I met many families, but here's a picture of a family that I met uh, there and uh, just this small hut. And you can keep the picture there for a minute. I'm going to tell you real quick. Uh, the man came out of the hut and he was one of the few people in this village that actually spoke English. And as I was talking with him, uh, I, I noticed that they didn't have any possessions. They didn't own anything. The only thing they owned were a couple garments that they wore probably every day. And they owned a couple of plastic bowls. They had one big bowl as a family that was very dirty. And then uh, maybe some plastic containers. And I'm not kidding. That's it. Like rocks and sticks are their possessions. Uh, most of everything they own are built out of rock, sticks, and mud. And that's it. And so I was just like, wow. I mean, it's just unbelievable to, to think that. Now, this is a story on gratitude. So here's, here's the perspective. Um, he, he says, hey, let me show you something. He goes inside of his hut, comes out, takes this plastic container, and he opens it up and has a little Ziploc bag filled with gold, like gold that he had grabbed from the ground, like, like a lot of gold. And I was like, whoa, is that gold? And he says, yeah, it's gold. And he goes, look, and he opens his container, and there's, there's a bunch of cash in there, like a lot of cash. And I don't know how much because it was a different currency. And, and listen, everybody else in this village was unbelievably poor, but this guy was kind of king of the hill. I mean, I'm thinking like, wow, that's incredible. And then he showed me, he grabbed the dirt and he puts it in a bowl and he showed me he had this really primitive way of pouring water on it and smearing it over like pantyhose. And he was explaining to me that he actually found this gold in this village. And I was like, this is amazing. And I said, then and you walk and he has to walk like, uh, like 120 miles one way to, to cash in and come back and all these things. I'm not kidding. And so um, anyway, it was just amazing. And I said, wow, you have all this money. Then I started to look around at his home and I noticed that on the side of his uh, hut was a massive anthill. And these aren't, these aren't ants like you and I know ants, right? These are ants in Africa, which means like, oh no, there's ants on me. Look, I'm dead. Like those are the kind of ants that they have in Africa, right? And so this was a massive anthill. And inside his hut, he had just like pushed a bunch of mud over to it just to, and I'm thinking, man, they can get through all these sticks. I'm just, I'm thinking to myself like, if you have money, why don't you spend it? And so I just kind of respectfully said, listen, I don't, I don't mean to be disrespectful. I said, but if you have money, why don't you, you know, buy to provide more for your family? And he looked at me and he said something in that moment that just blew me away. 
And so, listen, the guy owns nothing, and he looks at me and says, why? Why should I purchase anything? He goes, I have everything I need. He said, I have some crops over here. He says, we're able to eat. I have my family. He says, I have air in my lungs. I have everything I need. And I thought to myself, I don't know if I've met anybody with less possessions who says, I have everything I need. And what's amazing is, is that gratitude or thankfulness is a matter of perspective, isn't it? And it's, it's the reason why It's a Wonderful Life is such a great movie, isn't it? At Christmas time, you ever watch that? It's, uh, you know, Merry Christmas, you're all building savings alone. You know, that, that movie? Because, you know, he, you know he, he runs up the banister and he, you know, the, the banister comes off. He kisses it at the end and puts it back. He's so thankful for everything because of one thing. It's a perspective shift. Look, look what it says in the book of James. I want to start out with this as kind of our base the truth today, James tells us every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. In other words, James is saying every single thing, everything that you overlook, don't take time to notice, every good thing that you have, everything, everything is from God. And you'd say, well, wait a minute, the things I have, I work hard for, I've earned it. And then, you know, the book of Job would say, well, yeah, but who gave you the ability to earn it? Right? God has given you the ability to earn. And you know this, one health issue and your ability goes away like that. How many of you know other people who had the ability to earn in one moment and then in the next moment lost their ability to earn? If you've lived life long enough, you know that person, don't you? I mean, with one phone call, our lives can change. We, regardless of how well we earn or how smart we are or how you know, well-achieved we are or how well-educated we are, I mean, we have to recognize one thing. The Bible, we believe the Bible is true, and the Bible says that every single thing that we have is a gift. Whether you believe in God or not, whether you acknowledge him, whether you feel like you're on the outside looking in, whether you believe you know, that God really is the author of all things, it doesn't matter. That's how great God's love is. It is God in his great mercy and grace who bestows upon us the blessings because of his love for us. Whether we you know, feel like we deserve it or whether we recognize it or not. Because why? We gain perspective that gives us gratitude. And a little perspective that tells us we aren't really entitled to anything, then what happens is we choose gratitude in our hearts. There's a story in the scriptures uh, that Jesus was involved in with 10 lepers. And let's jump right into it in Luke 17. Look what it says in verse number 11. <clears throat> it says, now on his way to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. I wish I would have had a map there, but there's only one border between Samaria and Galilee. There's the Sea of Galilee, the Galileans were up here, mostly Jewish people, Nazareth and everything, and then there's Samaria down here and Jerusalem's down here. The border between the two, between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee, we know where that is on the map. So, so that's, there's, there's not a lot of distance there, so we know where Jesus was. And it says, as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and they called out with a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Now, I just want to pause there and just 
kind of set the scene. Leprosy is a disease that many of us don't deal with today, but you lose your appendages, you, the things, you know, your fingers and toes fall off, a lot of your, you know, body erodes away, and it's, it was believed in the first century to be contagious, although it isn't, but, uh, but, but if you had leprosy, you were an outcast. As soon as you had leprosy, that's it, that's the last time you spent with your family, and you were outcast outside the city, outside the villages, and you were left to only live the rest of your life with other lepers. Those were your new friends or your new community. And, and oftentimes uh, there was a leper community in caves, right? One thing that Israel does not lack is caves. There's caves everywhere. So when I was in Israel in 2009, we were walking along a city and a pathway along the border between Galilee and Samaria. And, and the tour guide that was there said, this is around the region where Jesus was walking. And we know that because there are mountain terrains on the left and on the right. And there's really only one place to walk in the middle. And so when Jesus was walking somewhere in this area, this is the area in which, you know, somewhere along this way, where the lepers would have shouted out to him. Now, there are many caves up on the hills. And she says, here, take a picture of this. And so I snapped this picture right here. Right there it is. Uh-oh, we got a problem? Okay, good. Uh, technical difficulties. Okay, uh, there, there are caves all along the, 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 the uh, region right here. And we believe this is a leper community. And I said, well, wait, wait a minute. How do you know that there were people with leprosy in these caves? And they said, well, because let's go up. And so we actually went up the mountain. And, we, and I took a picture of the, the roof on one of these caves. And, and there were holes that were drilled in the roofs of these caves. Some were small, some were big, but these, this was just a couple of many dozens of holes. And so what they would do is, uh, you weren't allowed to come in contact with lepers, so you would literally lower down food through these holes. They would go up above the cave and lower down supplies and things like that nature. That's how we know it's a, it's a leper community. And I thought, that's incredible. That's unbelievable. And so these guys who were kind of, you know, destined to live in the rocky terrain of these nasty caves, they see the Savior walking by. They see Jesus. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard that maybe he's healed some people. They, they heard that maybe he's the Messiah, the Son of God. They don't know for sure, but they cry out, Master, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Now imagine the lepers who, some have been there for years. Some have been, you know, condemned you know, outcast, right? Suffering in pain. And they cry out in total desperation, without a doubt, desperation. And look what it says in the next verse. It says in verse number 14, when he saw them, he didn't go up to them. He didn't walk up the hill. He didn't touch them. He didn't heal them. He said a sentence. And the sentence he said was, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, and we're going to talk about that phrase in a second, they were cleansed. Let me just pause there. Now, what you may not know and you might know is that uh, you had to show yourself to a priest in order to be declared cleansed. So if a leper were to either, you know, be healed or some, have a miraculous recovery, you were technically not allowed back in the city gates until a priest uh, deemed you as clean. And so when Jesus said, go show yourselves to the priest, they knew what that meant. That meant that, you know, go show. Now, it, it never said they were, they were healed on the spot. So it says, as they went. So imagine this, you have leprosy, you're, you're possibly missing body parts. And then Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priests. And you look at yourself and think, okay. 
And then you start walking. And it doesn't say how far they walked. But, I mean, it was miles and miles and miles and miles to the next city, the main city. Uh, the next city, by the way, is this city. And, and that arrow points to it on the hill. And that city is called Nain, N-A-I-N. And, and, and so on their way, it could have been a mile, it could have been half a mile, could have been 10 miles. But as they went, they were cleansed along the way, which is amazing. And then it says this. In verse number 15, one of them, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. We're going to talk about that in a second. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. That's important. Jesus asked, were not all 10 cleansed? And then he asked the question. This is the question he asks for, for, for that leper and for the disciples that were around. And I believe that he asks it for you and for me. There's no answer. It's rhetorical. But here's the question. Jesus knew the answer. He didn't ask it for the purpose of information. He asked, where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he's referring to the fact that he was a Samaritan. And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now there's a lot going on right here. But one of the things I want to start by talking about, start talking about, is that the fact that he was a Samaritan. So, you know, it doesn't say so, but that kind of leads us to believe the other lepers were in the Jewish community, right? Uh, they were in the Jewish community. So Jewish people, they recognized God, they grew up around the things of God, they understood about God's blessings, and the Samaritan was an outcast. Samaria was a place of uh, hybrid, uh, you know, races, different races kind of came together and people viewed it as an unclean area. So a Samaritan was a person that was a godless type of person. And so this one leper who is a Samaritan, who is not a church person, not a religious person, not a Jewish person, he comes back praising God, realizing he's clean. And then Jesus says, where are the other nine? You know what's amazing about this? What's amazing is that we know where the other nine are. The other nine are like loving life, jumping up and down and still running on to the priests. And one of them, you know, instead of going to get his bill of cleanliness, comes back and he actually thanks God uh, in person. Now, what's amazing is that the same thing that we observe in the scriptures, the same thing, I believe what, what is modeled here for us should be the way that we also give thanks. So the question is this, how do we give thanks? Here's the first one. We thank God for his mercy. That's the first one. Because if you think about it, the, the, the lepers had no, uh, what? No certainty that Jesus was going to heal them or even was able to heal them. And yet God decided to be merciful. Jesus decided to be merciful to him or to them, right? So they actually asked for mercy. Son of David, Jesus master, have mercy on us. And God decided to give them mercy undeserved favor. And here's the reality, that God gives you and I mercy every single day. And by the way, as, as imperfect as we are, as inconsistent as we are, right, even in terms of our salvation, when we go to God and say, God, I am nothing more than an imperfect, rotten sinner, whether I have a small sin that makes me a sinner or whether I have a large list of sins, I'm still a sinner. I'm in the same category. God saved me and God gives us mercy that we don't deserve. That's why God's grace is called amazing. 
Because he loves us. And so the very first thing that we need to wake up out of bed, and the reason why we're approaching you know, Thanksgiving, you know, and, and the reason why we're talking about this, I think is, it's appropriate because you and I need to be reminded of a little perspective. And we need to wake up and say, God is so merciful. It's what the lepers did. It's what the one leper did, at least. And then number two, we thank God that it's never too late. Let me just talk about this for a minute, okay? Can you imagine for a moment what they must have been thinking as they were walking toward the city, right? Think about this. Some lepers may have been in that ca- those caves for years. Some may have been in there for decades, think, thinking to themselves, it's too late for me. I've had so much pain and I have such a history of heartache and pain and suffering and misery. There's absolutely no way that this could be true. It's too late for me. There's no way that I can picture the end of my life being something radically different. I could never be healed. I could never be cleansed. I could never, you know, reintegrate with my family. I could never have relationships again. Let me just ask you this question. Have you ever felt that way? in your own life? Have you ever felt as you're walking along the road of life, man, I don't deserve any mercy. There's no way that God can come in. There's no way that he could turn my life around. There's no hope for me. There's a passage in Lamentations. I don't have it on the screen, but uh, you know what the book of Lamentations is? It's in the Old Testament. The word Lamentations, it means to lament. Lament means to cry out to God, to your woes. And, and all the way through the book of Lamentations, it's just a crying out of sorrows and woes. In Lamentations chapter 3, there's a phrase that I've never forgotten. And after it, after, after it lists a series of woes, in Lamentations 3 it says, But yet I still dare to hope. And I've got to tell you this. The reason why we thank God that it's never too late is because just know that it is never, ever, 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 ever too late to come to God because he wants to, he's able to, and he will transform you and redeem your life and give you new strength and new life and new love and new peace. And God can, can change and transform you. And thank God that, that even, even as we go through life with unanswered prayers and as we're praying and we're trying to hope and we're trying to believe, God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way that, he, you know, that we want them to. But the one thing that we know is that God is with us and that God works in us, that God will never leave us and that God you know, promises to be with us and give us what we need. And Jesus promises a life of blessing and a life of abundance. And as we surrender to him, Just know this, it's never too late. Just continue to believe and please, please, please dare to hope. And then finally, we give thanks because we thank God loudly and publicly. All right, I love this part because the Samaritan was the person who was the unchurched person. He was the person that didn't grow up around the things of God. And you know what I found being a pastor for 27 years? I found out that that's actually true today. The people who are church people take for granted as they see God move and work. But the people who are brand new, they're the people that actually praise God the loudest and the most public. Uh, The people who come in brand new that are not church people, they're the ones that invite more people. They're so excited. Hey, you got to come to this place. It's unbelievable. They're the ones that are most, they're, they're the loudest. And those of us who have either grown up in church or, you know, been around the things of God, we take it for granted every single day. And so the question Jesus asked is the same question for you and for me. He's like, where are the other nine? 
Where are those who have taken me for granted? Where are those who have not recognized my mercy once again? And for a lot of us sitting in the seat, that means something for us. What, what, what do we need to stop and be thankful for? What do we need to, you know, speak out loud? The, the leper came back and it said he loudly and publicly praised God. And that's, that needs to be a part of what we do because we need to do it without shame. But you know what the thing is? It can't be forced. It can't be something that where I say, hey, everybody, clap and cheer right now for God. Isn't he great? Everybody cheers. Like, I can't tell you to do it, right? It has to be something that is birthed inside, the perspective of like, God is so great. His mercy is so great. And the gratitude overflows and it comes out because we are so grateful. Um, I'm going to pause for my serious message and tell you a quick funny story about a time when I was forced to say thank you. Uh, when I was younger, I grew up with, I was the youngest of five boys. And so my mom and dad were still married at this time, which means I was younger than 10. And I remember my Aunt Carol was babysitting us and she, uh, you know, everybody was gone. And my Aunt Carol made sloppy joes and scalloped potatoes. And she is known to be one of the worst cooks in the history of the world. And I can't even describe you the, slop, the taste of the sloppy joes. I can't even describe it to you. Like if I, if I were to try, you might get ill. I mean, it was that bad. And the, slop, and, the, and the scalloped potatoes, somehow they were burnt on the bottom and raw on the top, which how do you even do that? And so she served them to us and we as a family sat around and none of us ate our food. And Aunt Carol was like, eat this food. And we were like, we, and, and, and you know, we were just kids. And so we started laughing. We said, Aunt Carol, this, is, this could be the worst thing we've ever tasted. And we were just saying these things out loud and we were laughing. None of us ate anything and we made her cry. And so we went to bed, we had, school was the next day. My father comes home after we're all in bed and he sees his sister crying. And so he says, kids, get down there right now. So we all come down and he's like, you're going to eat every bit of this food. And he has everything laid out. And he's like, right now, sit down, eat scalloped potatoes, eat sloppy joes right now, eat it, eat it. And he's literally making us eat it. And we're forcing this down. And I'm just like, this is the worst experience of my life. And I remember being little. And then he says, now thank your aunt for making this. She worked hard. Thank her. And we're literally, there's a picture in my mental mind. I'll never get it out of my mind. All five of us are staying there in our tidy whities crying, going, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for the food. And we're sitting there thanking Aunt Carol for this sloppy joe. And I'll never forget it. He made us eat that. And then he sent us to bed. And I'm not kidding. I kid you not. We came back home from school the next day. We all walk into school at the same time. You know, we come in through the door. My father's in the kitchen. He says, kids, get in here. So we all get in there and he's sitting at the kitchen table. He has a plate of food with scalloped potatoes, a sloppy joe with one bite taken out of it. And he goes, kids, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I think in, in, in retrospect, you know, like looking back, I should have walked up and be like, eat it, eat it, eat it right here, eat it, eat it. Say you're thankful, say it, right? I mean, you know, it's only 30 years later and I'm still scarred for life. So, but you know, here's the thing. We could all think of maybe a time where our parents forced us to say something that we really didn't mean, right? We can't ever be forced to just express our gratitude publicly or loudly. We have to genuinely understand and believe and recognize and our perspective needs to align with what is true. And every day we need to remind ourselves of what is true. And the truth is, God is merciful. 
And the truth is, God has blessed you. And the truth is, we have more blessings than we could ever take time to recognize. And so we thank God for his mercy. We thank God that it's never too late in our lives. As we go through life, we dare to hope, we pray, and we we realize that when God shows up, let us always be, not the nine, but the one who turns back and thanks God loudly and publicly. Now, Believe it or not, we're celebrating baptism today. And that is really what this story is actually a direct reflection of what happens in baptism. It really is. Because baptism is not a thing that gets you to heaven, right? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the thing that gets us to heaven is to believe that Jesus Christ came down on the earth. He died on a cross for only one reason, to pay for your sins and mine fully and finally. And Romans tells us that we believe in this is a free gift and that we cannot earn heaven ourselves. And maybe that's new news for you. But that's what the Bible says. And so baptism is a direct symbol or reflection of our salvation, of our new life. So the Bible tells us that when we dunk somebody underwater, that it's merely a symbol of Jesus going into the earth and and, and being raised to life as he resurrected on the third day. And so it's also a symbol of our old lives versus our new lives. That the old person I was, that that person's gone, that person's dead. I am a new person with new life. Now let me read for you from the book of Romans chapter 6. And this is a paraphrased version. It's from the message, uh, just to let you know that. But I love how it reads. It says this. "That's uh, That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us raised into a light-filled world by our Father, so that, for the purpose of, so that we can see where we're going in in our new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer at sin's beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive, he brings God down to us. So from now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. You see, baptism is a symbol of all of that. And there's a moment when somebody goes under the water and comes out, and there's a single moment where, where we celebrate. That's why we che- clap and cheer. Not because it's like, why would somebody get wet and then be happy about it? Listen, the reason why is because it symbolizes a spiritual and unbelievable eternal transformation in the heart and in our soul. And that's what that means. In other words, you can say it this way. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, but dead people live. That's what the Bible says. So that's why we celebrate. So let me tie it to the leper story. Here it is. So the question is this then. What is going on in the hearts of the people when we get baptized? What is going on in our hearts when we get baptized? And the answers are the same. Number one, we thank God for his mercy in that moment. Number two, we thank God it's never too late. And number three, we thank God loudly and publicly 
Think about every single person's story who goes under the water and comes up and says, I've made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And in that moment, they are thanking God for his mercy. They are thanking God that it's never too late to redeem or save you know, and, and, and you know, repurpose a person like me. And they thank God loudly and they do it publicly. And that's what baptism is. Um, so the band's going to come out and, the, and the, uh, the people getting baptized are going to slip out. Ryan, raise your hand, buddy. So go ahead and follow Ryan right there, guys, who are going to get take the plunge with us, all right? And here's what's going to happen. In just a minute, as they go back and prepare for baptism, uh, this rented facility doesn't allow us to put a baptism on the stage, so we're actually going to have to go back there to the scene shop, and we'll pop up on video in just a minute. But I just want to say this. If you're here today and you uh, feel inspired to join them, just follow them right now, even in your jeans, like going home with your car all wet, we'll give you a shirt and we'll, we'll, you can take the plunge. And you say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, do a walk up. I'm going to go home wet. Great. Let's do it together. All right. Just follow these guys right there. Just go back there and uh, we'll get you registered because baptism is the wedding ring of salvation. Uh, if I take this ring off, it doesn't make me not married. What made me married was when I stand at the altar and I say my vows to my wife, I put the ring on for one reason. It's a symbol. To let all the ladies know. <laughs> As if that's necessary. But, but it's to let everybody know, right? So the ring doesn't make me married or unmarried. The ring is a symbol of that which took place. And when I said my vows to Jesus, when I actually declared my belief in him, actually it was in my heart silently, May 15th, 1985 at 5.30 p.m. in 3224 Oregon in the driveway, in my driveway, sitting and talking with somebody in my cars is actually when I first started to put my faith and trust in Jesus in that very moment. I got to tell you, I've been trying my very best to remind myself to be grateful, to be thankful, and to praise him loudly and publicly. Let's pray together. Father, We thank you for this day, for this awesome celebration. We pray, God, that you would help us to never, ever, ever be ashamed of your grace and your mercy in our lives. Father, help us who have been around church world for a long time to recognize that we may fall in the category of the nine, but no more. Father, we want to join the ranks of the one, the one who is excited the one who lives in perspective, the one who lives with joy and contentment, the one who lives with a heart of gratitude and gratefulness. So Father, as we approach this Thanksgiving holiday, help it to be more than just thanking, thanking God for family and a roof over our heads. Father, help us to cross over into living a life of gratitude in every single area of our lives. Father, thank you for being so good to us. Father, for those struggling in here, for those who have unanswered prayers, for those of us who are struggling right now in this season of life, Lord, demonstrate yourself in a very real and powerful way. Surround these guys and surround all of us with others who would pray for us and support us and be there for us as we walk this road wondering if there's any hope. Father, I pray that you would, again, just transform our hearts and help us, God, to always praise you publicly and loudly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
There's a lot of truth in uh, Chris's message, and I was thinking about one point um, that